Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. How are boards of directors of major companies coping in 2021 with the increasing expectations from so many stakeholders? How can directors ensure that their companies are doing the right things and doing business in the right way? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast, where we continue our conversations about the critical role of boards in shaping ethical corporate culture. I'm your guest host, Marsha urshagi Hames, a partner at Tapestry Networks, and today I am joined by Kim Williams, an accomplished corporate leader who currently sits on the boards of Weyerhaeuser, Excel Energy, where she chairs the finance committee, Microvest, and the EW Scripps company, where she chairs the board and is also chair of the audit committee. Kim is also involved in nonprofits that focus on women's issues. Kim, thank you for coming on today's Principled Podcast. Marsha, thank you for the opportunity to share something of my experience and my thoughts on board service with your audience. Excellent. So let's jump right into it. I mean, you've had such an accomplished career in investment management. You retired as senior vice president, partner, and associate director of global industry research at Wellington Management Company, and then turned to a distinguished career of service on both corporate and nonprofit boards. Can you tell us a little bit more about your story, your background and career? Thank you, Marsha. I grew up and was educated in the UK, where I graduated with a master's degree in economics. I had fully expected to find a position as an economist, as I assumed that that's what my master's degree had prepared me for. But serendipity introduced me to the investment management business, a relatively underdeveloped industry at that time in the UK. I still can't remember how I discovered the opportunity. I only know it wasn't through the internet, as I grew up at a time before the internet. But the attractions of the industry was that it provided me with the opportunity to employ my analytical skills, work independently, and be judged on my own performance. I worked initially as an analyst for a pension fund, which at the time was one of the largest internally managed funds in the UK. And then when my husband and I moved to the US, I continued my career as an analyst, first for Luma Sales, and then for Wellington Management, where I completed a successful 20-year career, initially as an analyst and subsequently assuming a broader management role in the firm. But then following 25 years of commitment to the investment management business, I chose to retire at what could be described as the pinnacle of my professional career. I was a partner of one of the largest investment management firms in the world, I'd been featured in Barron's, and I had been repeatedly recognized as one of the best in my field. It was therefore with some trepidation that I embarked on a new adventure and left the comfort of my established career 
to apply my professional expertise in a different way, and that as a corporate board member. And as you mentioned, today I currently sit on the board of three public companies. Kim, what an illustrious story. And I'm so moved because, you know, one of the things that really has captured me is that, you know, when you began your career pre-internet and all of that in investment management, you were one of the relatively few women in that industry. I've read an article as we were preparing for our conversation profiling some of your intense dedication and commitment to women's issues. Where you described your career, you know, start as one steeped in tradition, but entrenched in misogyny. Can you share more with our listeners about how the sexism you faced and even the the experience of being and walking and taking your steps as the only woman in a room shaped the early steps in your career? Yes, Marsha. I suppose I've never thought of myself as a trailblazer or as a role model during my career. But as you mentioned, it was not uncommon for me to walk into a meeting of 200 people and then to realize that I was the only woman in the room. And yes, this did bring some uncomfortable moments. I had portfolio managers tell me that women had no business in the investment management industry that as a woman, I was not equipped to follow engineering companies as an analyst, that my talents were better served focusing on consumer companies. On two occasions, I discovered after the fact that had I not worked out, they would never have hired another woman. And two particularly uncomfortable moments come to mind when I was still working in London and early in my career. A doorman directed me to the kitchen when I asked for the luncheon that I was due to attend. And if that wasn't bad enough, he was very unapologetic when I returned and informed him that I was actually a guest and not the help. In fact, he placed the blame squarely on me. I was a woman, so how was he expected to know that I was other than the help? Yeah. And on another occasion, a senior partner at an investment bank asked me if I had come to serve the drinks. (laughs) These incidents were early in my career, but I think allowed me to develop an inner strength and fortitude and forced me to be more assertive and courageous than my personality might suggest. Further, it really made me more determined to demonstrate that I should be judged by my performance. But that said, I would also acknowledge that there is an advantage to being the only woman in the room. Managements seldom forgot me, for better or worse. (laughs) And in spite of the challenges, I thrived in the environment. I loved the daily stimulation, the constantly changing schedule, the need to respond to the immediate nature of events. And I grew to relish the challenge. You know, Kim, just the stories you're sharing, you know, give me goosebumps. And what pains me is you were experiencing this as a pioneer at a time where you simply didn't even have the open forums to share your experience more publicly or more privately as we do today. And I think as a mother of a daughter who's also in college right now pursuing her next chapter in life, our young women cannot be what they do not see. 
So if that doorman simply couldn't process or relate to how you had such a position of impact and influence and leadership, it's not just our daughters, it's our sons and it's our communities that just really need more role models like you. So if I take a step back and and really reflect on the courage of this experience, when you look at progress today around inclusivity, around diversity, gender parity, you know, if anything, in not only your industry and journey, but generally in the world, in the corporate world, has there been progress? I mean, what is the responsibility of the corporation to be more, shall I say, intentional about supporting and shaping change and progress? On balance, I'd have to acknowledge, Marsha, that there has been progress, but it's still, I think we would all accept, remains a work in progress. Investors, interestingly, are demanding increasing diversity on corporate boards and in the C-suite, which may accelerate this process because it's been clearly demonstrated that increased diversity contributes to enhance financial performance. And I think this further reinforces the imperative of enhanced diversity as we're not taking full advantage of valuable assets. But increased participation has been achieved by women in corporate boardrooms. At the end of the first quarter of 2021, 24% of all board seats in the Russell 3000 were occupied by women. And this is versus 15% in 2016. So some progress you can see. But I was somewhat shocked to see that there are still... 5% of the Russell 3000 that have all male boards and no female representation. And only 4% of S&P 500 companies have a female chair. And in fact, an interesting fact, there are more male chairs called John in the S&P 500 than there are female chairs. And I think looking to the C-suite There, less than 10% of the S&P 500 have a female CEO. Hmm. I'm actually proud to share and report that Jean Hines assumed the position of CEO at Wellington Management earlier this year, the first woman in that role. And Jean Hines was previously the only second female managing partner. So some progress in the investment management industry too. I do believe, to your point, Marsha, it's the responsibility of boards and management to be more intentional in ensuring increased diversity. I acknowledge that this requires boldness to accomplish diversity goals, and you have to overcome potential resistance or reluctance based on that unfounded belief that pursuing diversity goals requires a lowering of standards. Increasingly, the next generation of talent is demanding a diverse workplace. And if you don't embrace diversity, you will not be seen as the employer of choice. I'm speaking to my board experience. I'm proud to note that the boards on which I serve have broad diversity, thought, gender, and ethnic diversity. And each company has an emphasis and a commitment to achieving further diversity at all levels of the workforce. I would note, as you did earlier, that I chair the Scripps Board as well as its Audit Committee, and I chair the Finance Committee at Excel. And at Warehouser, 
two of the three committees are chaired by women. Mm -hmm. So while there is some progress, there's always a particular mentor or instrumental figure in all of our lives that either allows us to find the courage or see the examples of, of the how, the pathway forward. Were there any significant mentors or sponsors in your journey that really had an impact on the trajectory of your career path? Yes, indeed. And I'm grateful to those individuals who served as important mentors to me during my career and provided me with guidance and encouragement at critical points in my career. And this is not just in the investment management business, but also through my corporate board experience. But not surprisingly, given the nature of and the challenges of both the industry and moving into the corporate board world, they were all men, but they allowed me to seize the opportunities afforded me and capitalize on my abilities and develop new skills. They also provided me with important opportunities. But this has really encouraged me to seek out opportunities to seek to support other women to realize their full potential. And I work actively wherever possible to advance and promote women. Well, and building on that, when we talk about kind of the board's own diversity, reflecting on its own culture and diversity, there's been a lot of conversation around the need to bring in other types of experiences and perspectives, more cognitive diversity into the boardroom. And a career like yours in investment management was not a typical background for a director when you joined your first board. Could you tell our listeners a little bit around the journey to how did you land that first board role? You know, how have things maybe changed with CEOs and boards becoming a little more open to considering different skills and backgrounds for board seats? Yes, Marsha, indeed, you are correct. I had a very unconventional background for seeking a corporate board position. And when I embarked on my search, which was now some time ago, the majority of board members were either sitting CEOs or retired CEOs or other C-suite executives. But I was fortunate to encounter companies with a willingness to consider more diverse experience as they look to recruit board members. This was bolstered by the reputation that I enjoyed and the relationships and credentials that I had established during my career. When I was an analyst, I had covered both Warehouser and EW scripts, and the company had a first-hand glimpse into the type of experience that I could contribute to the boardroom. Unless anybody think that these CEOs were expecting a pass if I went into the boardroom, I enjoyed a particular reputation as a tough questioner. And there was actually a sell-side analyst who wrote a report about my election to the warehouser board saying how courageous the company was in inviting me into the boardroom. But I think it's increasingly clear that to ensure adequate diversity of thought, gender and ethnicity, it's critical that companies look beyond the traditional experience to recruit board members. I would highlight potential areas of recruitment such as executives with HR experience, 
given the heightened focus and scrutiny on talent management and human capital management. I'd also look to the role of the chief information officer to strengthen the oversight of cybersecurity risk. And then a word about financial analysts who bring both analytical skills, but also investor perspectives, which I think are increasingly important into the boardroom. And I'm seeing that happen. And many of my former investment colleagues and partners, both male and female, currently sit on corporate boards. Well, I like that you've really also highlighted that there is at times, and I think the pandemic revealed this quite a bit, there is an importance to break the groupthink, to have the courage to ask or to be a little more investigative around some of the uncomfortable issues, because we saw with risk, talent, all of these matters unfolding over the last 18 months. It takes those skills and experiences to be able to step in and courageously ask what may be an unpopular question, you know, to move the organization forward. So, you know, turning to some of your current board service, what are some of the more challenging or emerging challenges that boards of large global companies are starting to face today as, as we sort of, I don't even know if we could say we're coming out of the pandemic, but we sort of learned a lot. And how do boards and oversight practices need to really start to evolve to meet these challenges? Well, before I answer that question, Marsha, I'd like to just reflect on that previous comment that you make. Mm. When I think about diversity, I think about it in its many facets. Mm -hmm. And indeed, when I think about recruiting and look to who we should bring on to the corporate boards I currently sit, I really think about what do I not know? Mm-hmm. And what expertise do I need in the boardroom in order to unearth those issues that somebody else has the ability to define? I think diversity in thought is just as important as all the other areas of diversity in order to make sure that we're getting the best questions asked and the best results for a corporation. Absolutely. But thinking about this question that you've posed to me now, I think the the, the simple thing would be where to begin. The last 18 months have been unprecedented for many people, obviously not just corporate boards. We've been dealing with the challenges of COVID, a virtual work environment, and the companies I'm involved with, employees had to continue to operate either to deliver TV news or provide wood products or to keep simply keep the lights on in our service territories. And the challenge during this period was really keeping those employees safe and adapting to a work environment which was often from home and making sure that the necessary technology was available to employees and that the appropriate control environment was there. And on a number of boards, we were meeting weekly, of course, remotely, but given the uncertainty of the time and the lack of visibility, this became necessary. But now the issues that we face, while, as you mentioned, we continue to deal with COVID, we have the issues of the return to the office and the implication of vaccine mandates and how they affect the companies. We have cybersecurity and increased ransomware threats and attacks. And also we're dealing with the issue of the great resignation 
demographics were really already presenting a challenge with baby boomers retiring at unprecedented levels. We are having additional pressures as employees are reassessing their priorities and leaving the workforce or moving to different opportunities. So this is forcing us to address the future of work and the role of technology and how technology might play a role in providing solutions. And then, of course, there's the topic of ESG and EDI, talent management and the reporting requirements around those and which committees should be addressing each of these individual topics. And then, of course, climate change. These were in no particular order and doesn't reflect how I or any of my board set priorities. But I would also just reiterate that coincidentally, we as a board are also charged with the regular work of the board, with the oversight of strategic direction, the review of management succession, management talent and performance, capital deployment and the review of the appropriate capital structures, holding management accountable for delivering financial results and ensuring the integrity of the financial results. So I'm sure I've left something out, but as you can see, this is a very full plate that we have. And with this very full plate, I mean, it's overflowing from cyber to talent to capital matters. You know, you've been a part of our conversations with the Ethics Culture Compliance Network focused on oversight of culture. How can a board really, I mean, culture itself isn't a a standalone topic on an agenda. And as you've mentioned, you know, as we're transforming how we work, how we recruit talent, how we develop the next generation of leaders in this new digital world, how can boards potentially approach thinking differently around oversight of culture or what role can the board play, if any, in influencing the shape of culture in this new world? Well, I think boards have an important role, Marsha, in ensuring that managements are overseeing culture. And in fact, boards themselves should be ensuring that the mission, vision and values of a corporation are really reflected in the culture of the enterprise and then holding managements accountable for this. I think that to the extent everything begins with tone at the top, but it's then also important for boards to really understand and appreciate if that tone at the top and that mission statement really translates into other levels in the organization. I think that's been one of the things that I have found a challenge in over the last 18 months with everything being done remotely, because I enjoy spending time in the divisions with employees below the C-suite, where you have the opportunity to really understand and appreciate if what is being articulated by senior management is really being embraced and incorporated into the enterprise writ large. I particularly also really rely on internal audit to be an auditor of the corporate culture. And again, they have been challenged with being able to go out into the operations and into the day-to-day of the employees. So I think that's something that really I look forward to getting back on the road and traveling to see people. But I think that there just are many opportunities that boards have in order to really encourage managements to 
act boldly, to be held accountable and to make sure that you know, the appropriate KPIs are included in compensation met- metrics, to understand how managements are approaching talent management, particularly differently if they have not achieved the desired diversity objectives. And I think it's also important to focus on strategies to foster inclusion within an organization because it's not just sufficient to attract a diverse workforce, you then have to retain them. And so we also need to recognize that this perhaps comes back to you know, some of the challenges around this. I think we need to recognize that there will be those in an organization who do not embrace the fact that we need a more diverse, inclusive workforce and may even feel threatened and believe that they will be at risk as the company pursues additional diversity. So I think it's the challenge of management and the board to really reinforce this as a priority, why it's a priority, and that it will contribute to a better performing organization as a whole, not just will benefit some members of the community at the expense of others. And they're just no, finally, boards really do have an important oversight role. And I particularly have been involved with interactions with identified high performers in organizations to demonstrate the type of opportunities that are available, particularly to young women, and to provide guidance in their, how they might view their upcoming challenge and overcoming those challenges. But I do think, finally, it's that importance of reinforcing this as a priority of the board. So you really are touching on a number of points. And one thing that sort of pops in my mind as you describe this sort of opportunity of of intentionality and and the potential of some individuals feeling threatened or, or fearing some of the diversity is I think of authentic leadership. And how can we cultivate societies and communities and corporate workforces and cultures that really support that sense of authenticity? I know that in a lot of the research we're seeing around the new generation that's in the workforce, they desire to work and be aligned. And you mentioned this, values-oriented organizations and, and authentic and committed and intentional organizations. So it's not just recruiting diversity, but it's identifying ways to retain and support those voices. So I think, Marsha, that you raise a very good point there. I am fortunate in my board service to be involved with three companies who have very well articulated mission, vision, and values, which frankly, we are finding as a competitive advantage as recruit people. And I think it's important, again, to something highlight something that you said. It's important to think about all of the stakeholders that are involved with that because it, it's not just about one particular group, but you have to include whether it's viewers of the television stations that watch our programming, whether it's the communities that are taking electrical service in our service territories, or whether it's what we're doing in terms of environmental stewardship at Warehouser. These things are all very important in really speaking to being able to attract and retain talent, 
to make sure that people actually feel proud when they work for you. It, it's so true. It's so true how much we are connecting purpose and commitment with organizations to impact. And we're seeing more and more that with Gen Z, especially, they want to work for organizations that not only fulfill what they're passionate about, but are contributing to the communities that they serve and they work in. But, you know, we're kind of reaching the near the kind of the end of our time together, Kim. And I want to touch on one point, which I think is really crucial for us to discuss, and that is safety. You serve on the boards of companies where safety is is critical, and it serves actually as a, a key performance indicator. It's really a part of the value and mission and purpose of the organization. What lessons can you share with listeners around board oversight of safety culture, and how can this help apply to our listeners kind of thinking about cultivating ethical cultures across an organization? Well, when we were initially having those conversations about ethics and the ethical value of companies and how you monitor that, it really made me think about what we're doing both at Excel and at Warehouser on safety and creating a safety culture. And those two organizations have very dangerous occupations and it's of utmost importance that we ensure that our workforce returns to their family safe every night. And in order to do that and to foster a culture of safety, it has to, again, tone at the top, making sure that this is something that is embraced by everyone, not just the senior leadership, but the board and all members of the community and employees. And, and I think where the board has a role to play is that conveying to the employees that it is a priority for us. On both those boards, we begin every board meeting with either a safety moment or an update on safety to just reinforce the notion that to create a culture, you really need to continue to do it because it culture is something that can be very fragile. If you don't continue to reinforce it, it might not survive. And so, again, I think it just has to be something that's ingrained in the culture and is part of what you do on a day-to-day. I notice that in my own actions when I'm at home, I don't do anything that could be considered unsafe. And I'm always encouraging those around me to make sure that they are operating and working in safe conditions But again, it's really about tone at the top, board engagement with the broader workforce to convey that that safety really is a key principle. And I think you can do that with culture and the notion that establishing a strong tone with respect to an ethical culture. And while you might have a performance-driven culture That doesn't preclude you from also having an ethical culture because it has to be demonstrated that financial results cannot be at the when you jeopardize ethical standards. That is a great way to end. Ethics is non-negotiable and performance shall be achieved and pursued, but not at the expense of how we get there. So, Kim, you know, clearly this is a conversation we could be having 
all day. I've really enjoyed learning. I've learned so much from you. And I hope that we have the opportunity to continue the dialogue in a future podcast, but we're out of time for now. So thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you, Marsha. It was a delight and I really enjoyed it. So um, thank you for allowing me to share my story. Absolutely. And to all of our listeners, I'm Marsha Shaggy Hames with gratitude for tuning in to the Principal Podcast from LRN, and I'm going to sign off. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principal Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.